Oh, oh yeah, we got, we should introduce our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if you say so. Uh, hello, Hannah. <laughs> hey, Deanna. This is a podcast, a weekly podcast. Ooh, tell me more. it is called... Good Witches. Bad Bitches. Damn straight. And we talk about women. Yeah. We talk about ladies. Ladies. And yeah, I mean, that means everybody who considers themselves a lady. Again, to quote Lizzo, if you feel like a girl, then you feel like a girl. And that's that's the, the our creed. Yes. Yeah. I love that. If you feel like a girl, then you're a girl. And that's our creed. You're real like a girl. I mean, we should probably write that down somewhere. It's in my brain forever and written on my heart because Lizzo. That's perfect. <laughs> it's written on my heart. Aww. Lots of things are written on my heart. I love that. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to rule your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips. It's good to see you, dude. It's good to Even see you, too. Even though it's freaking hot in New York. Happy summer. Yeah, happy summer. Hot and humid. The humidity is Oof. what's the absolute killer here. It is a fucking killer. And now we have killer ticks. Speaking of killers. Apparently. Yeah. I, I considered um, pulling up an article about them to, like, scare all of you. But what? I don't think I want to do that because it scares me. But just, yes. like, go look up new East Coast ticks if you really want to know. And that's, no, I you don't. know. Yeah, I won't force you to hear about it is all I'm saying. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Because I don't want nightmares. Oh, God. But I, it's funny because, like, by the time everybody hears this, Pride Month will be over. Yes. But as we're recording. It is World Pride. It is World Pride. And so there is a parade going on in New York. And I heard. Like literally right now. Literally at this (laughs) moment. And um, I heard like that there are four million people there. That sounds overwhelming. It sounds very overwhelming. I'm very pro-Pride, obviously. But I'm I'm too old and have become too introverted. It's very anxiety (laughs) inducing. The way The way crowds kind of congeal in this city mm-hmm. especially during pride like i've i've been around the parade congeal. <laughs> i know but it's like and it's hot and it's sticky and it's gross and everybody's just smushed up all up against each other and and now of course there are two conflicting pride parades and i don't know it's a weird time so sounds fun but sounds overwhelming for me and i choose to celebrate by talking about yeah (laughs) i'm talking about queer uh ladies and and yeah you know lgbtq ladies and yeah i included the g even though there's an l because why not why not do what you gotta do some some lesbians also call Call themselves themselves gay. gay yes um so in that spirit even though like i said y'all listening are probably over it by now no I <laughs> too bad. I do think it's worth mentioning because I just found this myself and I'm very excited. But MTV has a new show. Oh fuck. <laughs> Please talk about this show yeah. because this is the best. I so I'm going to read just Actually, this little Actually, I don't think the show is new, but I think this season this is season. The, the the twist. Yes. Yeah. Um so this I'm going to read this little thing from Hollywood Reporter mm-hmm. and the show premiered on the 26th. So we're a few days in already. 
how do I watch it? Um, it's on MTV, so I don't know how you watch MTV. But yeah, so I did want to just like kind of give a little like a little taste of what this is. So this is from the Hollywood Reporter, and the uh, the headline is the groundbreaking eighth season of the network's hit series Are You the One is set to premiere on June 26th. Um, MTV on Thursday announced, Thursday, May sometime, so this is a little bit old, but they announced the first sexually fluid cast for the upcoming eighth season of their hit reality series, Are You the One? Following Are You the One's signature format, 16 singles will travel to Hawaii in hopes of finding their perfect match and splitting the $1 million cash prize. But for the first time ever on a dating competition show in the U.S., there will be no gender limitations as each cast member identifies as sexually fluid. Woo! But this, also, wait, how do you win? How do you get that million-dollar prize? Are there challenges? I don't understand. I don't know. Maybe it'll tell me. Okay. Um, this season also introduces Dr. Frankie, a relationship expert who works with the singles to help them cope with current disaster dating trends such as ghosting, Why benching. did they not have this before season eight? I don't know. Okay. Um, and it tests them on their willingness to fall into these painful trends as they date multiple people on national television. Yeah. From coming out moments to exploring the intricacies of sexual and gender identity, this season of Are You the One seems uh, or aims to highlight powerful stories stories about what it means to find love as a sexually fluid individual um so that's all it says i have no idea how you win the cash prize i assume just by like finding love when no one else does <laughs> or something what if everybody finds love oh my god that's the that's, that's the, the beauty but also the terrifying thing about having a fully sexually fluid cast yeah everybody is fair, fair game. game yeah i love it and so there is a little teaser like it's eight minutes long. You sent it to me oh, earlier this week. God, I watched all eight minutes and I was like, oh, this is the it's, best thing. They're all thing. meeting each other and they all are like, oh, my God, they're, uh, they're hot. They're hot. They're hot. It's so <laughs> funny. And really kind of beautiful. I mean, all of it's these adorable. people. I know. I know. They're so they're all varying degrees of like gender fluidity and also sexual fluid. Yeah, there's fluidity. some there are some people who are like very very duded out and some like hyper femme people and then there's yep. there there are few non-binary folks in there as well and yep. they're all really hot because that's all kind really of hot the, the point mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah so that's lovely and i really want to find a way to watch that but i found that interesting the the person who uh their preferred pronouns were they them or literally their name their name they were like, I forget what their name was, but it was just like my my absolute preferred pronoun is my name. And it's like, <laughs> wait, then it sounds constantly like people are talking about you like you're not in the room. I know. I think it's, it's, but it's so uh, funny. But if that's well, sure. Yeah, man. I mean, that's the beauty of, of that whole um, thing, like coming to terms with that, with your identity in that way is like realizing that there is this box. And the minute you step outside that box you can do whatever you want. Yeah. You know, the box exists for for reasons beyond our control, but like once you're outside of it, that there's there's not a ton of limits because you're already outside of it. So like what is anyone going to say other yeah. than what they're already going to say? And it's amazing to me that it took them this long to to figure this out because some of the most exciting was well, interesting cuz it'll it kind of shifts the the drama, but did you you were uh, privy to that um 
huge story about uh, the Vietnamese bachelor, right? No. Oh, 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 yes. Where that, where two of the female contestants competing for oh. The Bachelor fell in love on the show. Yes. And she like <laughs> went up and she's like, I, I'm, I have to leave because I came here to find love and I found it. And she like begged her to leave with her and she like couldn't at first, but they're still together. I know. I saw some like paparazzi photos of them. I should find that as well as the link to the the little promo yeah. for MTV and, and link those in our show notes. But people should figure out that that's some of the most exciting parts. I know. Is that type of. The fair gameness is like very. That ups the ups the ante. It does. In a it big way. raises the stakes. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's the little thing I wanted to read and make people aware of. Yeah. Tell me if you watch it. I want to know. Yeah. Yeah. We should try and figure it out. Yeah, man. Okay. Um, who are you going to tell me about this week? Uh, first of all, I'm going to pause um, and then I'll come and then we'll talk about the first lady of July. The first lady of July. That's our title now. <laughs> are you a good witch? Or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. Okay, let's talk about a lady. Talk about a lady. This is a lady that I was really excited to talk about. Um, I wanted to talk about her for a while. Um, but you know, uh, she wasn't, I, uh, I think it was May that I found her and I was like, oh my fucking God. But then obviously she does not obviously, but she doesn't really have anything to do with pride month. So I've had to hold off, but now here I go. Here you go. Okay. So my sources are New York times and architectmagazine.com. Ooh. Uh oh. Okay. I always know I'm in for something like very specific and special when you give me those like weird little niche it's not just like wikipedia and new york times yeah architect magazine all right it's basically um i i have combined two those two pieces um which were both beautifully written um by alexandra lang and christopher hawthorne um so just fyi it's basically my own edited blended version of their two pieces about this person cool all right so let's go do it through fire and shock the Great San Francisco Earthquake of 1906 destroyed more than 80% of the city's buildings. The Grand Fairmont Hotel, which still exists, um, only days from opening, was gutted by flames, leaving only a shell. Oh, yikes. The hotel's owners, determined to rebuild, turned to a young architect named Julia Morgan. Only three years earlier, she had built a bell tower on the campus of Mills College, and it had withstood the earthquake unscathed. Proof that Morgan was as experienced in reinforced concrete as she was in European design. Ooh. Which I was like, holy shit. Um, uh, But word that a woman had been hired to renovate the luxurious hotel was met with astonishment. (laughs) It's it's the turn of the century. 
Like, it was a very specific time. Yes. This is before even women's lib and, and before suffrage and all that. Yeah. Um, before men had to stop beating their wives. Legally. <laughs> legally. Was the building really in the charge of a woman? Jane Armstrong, a reporter for the San Francisco Call, asked the project's foreman in 1907 on a visit to the hotel's ballroom after Morgan had restored it to its original splendor. Yes, the foreman answered. It was in charge of, quote, a real architect. And her name happens to be Julia Morgan, but it might as well be John Morgan, which in 1907 is very high praise from a man. In 2019! Like, hearing anyone say that is... It's, you know, but like saying like, wow, she's so good. It's like she's as smart as a dude is like a very backhanded compliment. I mean, it totally is. Yeah. I just think like that is it's it is. It's nice to hear, mm-hmm. you know, that this, you know, contractor was like, who cares? Yeah, no, she's fucking amazing. Yeah. I, I carried out her plans and they were fucking great. Yeah. Um, quote to him. It was work well done. Armstrong wrote after she t- she was also amazed, I think, that this man was admitting that this woman was great. <laughs> oh, this yeah. This female reporter was like, wow. <laughs> she must be good. She must be good if this man is admitting that she's good. Uh, oh, God. After she toured the building with Morgan, she added that she was so inspired that she wanted to emblaze above the above the hotel the part that a woman played. Oh, I totally understand that feeling. Yeah. Be like, uh, that feels so significant. I feel like that with the... Um, with the oh god and now i'm totally gonna butcher this but the monument to vietnam war victims and and veterans it was designed by a woman Mm. and she had to really fight to get this i'm gonna have to look this up now because yeah i do um but that's how i always feel about it because people go and visit this even now maya lynn was uh the person who the architect actually she might have been a student still she was a 21 year old architecture student who designed the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. But it was, you know, at a time when, like, that just wasn't even a thing. Even 80-some-odd years later. Oh, yeah. That was still a big fucking problem. Oh, yeah. And so I always think about that with with certain things. Like, oh, man, I wish I could just tell people, like, a woman made this. Yes. And fought really hard to make it. It's interesting how the assumption is to always especially especially with older stuff is to always assume that, oh it was designed by a dude yep um but anyway Sorry. so julia morgan actually posthumously won this like a really um uh, prestigious architecture prize in like 2015 or something and that's mm-hmm. why the architecture magazine wrote this piece about her interesting um, but she was the first woman to be awarded this award <laughs> and this was just a few years ago oh my god Uh. (laughs) All right. Julia Morgan was a true Californian, born in San Francisco in January 1872, and she died there in 1957. Aside from a childhood year in New York and an important six-year stint in Paris, during which she became the first female student to earn a degree from the architecture division of the École des Beaux-Arts, she spent her entire life in Oakland, Berkeley, and San Francisco. Though she designed a YWCA in Honolulu in 1920 and sent sketches by mail for a house to be built in Auckland, New Zealand in 1928, nearly all of her commissions were in her home state. Hmm. And a staggering number of commissions there were. Morgan, the first female architect to be licensed by the state of California, 
oversaw more than 700 built projects during her career, or an average of 15 per year between the time she founded her San Francisco office in 1904 and her decision to close it in 1951 when she was 79. Whoa. By contrast, her mentor, uh, who was a professor of hers, uh, Maybeck was his name, we'll talk about more later, he completed an average of roughly two buildings per year. 15 uh, per year was her average. 15 per year is is insane today, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, good God. Um, geographically, the California projects reigned, ranged from the Herald Examiner building in downtown Los Angeles, a combination of Moorish and Mission Revival styles, all the way to North Wintoon, the estate near Mount... <laughs> Shasta, Shasta, <laughs> and the Oregon border, where she designed several buildings between 1924 and 1943 for the newspaper's owner, William Randolph Hearst. Whoa. Along with his mother, Phoebe Apperson Hearst, he was Morgan's most consistent and supportive client, commissioning her to design the extravagant group of buildings in San Simeon, California, known collectively as Hearst Castle. Whoa. Which is now a, uh, like a national park that you can go visit. Oh. I did not know. You can take tours. I'll, I'll show you. Uh, Lady Gaga filmed her um, guy, G-U-I, music video there. Of course she did. Yes. And it's. I was always like, where the fuck is this? It's a real place. And it was built in like the early part of like 1930s or some shit. Fucking incredible. I say it more later. But anyway. So Julia's father was Charles Bill Morgan. He settled in California in 1867, having reached it from Brooklyn by sailing around the tip of South America, accompanied by his new bride, <laughs> Eliza Woodland Parmalee. <laughs> what? Wait, wait. They got married and then they were like, let's just sail to Brooklyn. And they went around. No, sail to California. Or California. Yes. But that's from Brooklyn. Yes. That's, oh my God. Because the Panama Canal didn't exist yet. <laughs> so in order to get there... You had to go all the way around South America. That's a fucking honeymoon right there. It's long. That's a, uh, the Queen Mary had to make that same journey when the city of Long Beach bought it. it That'll test the marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So her dad was a mining engineer. Amazing. Uh, he saw the West as a place to make his fortune. Morgan and her four siblings were raised in a large Victorian house across San Francisco Bay in Oakland. Um, she enrolled at the University of California, Berkeley, where she studied, uh, studied civil engineering. She would go on to become one of the first female students in the UC system to earn a degree in civil engineering. Wow. Uh, in 1894, she had to rely on her younger brother, Avery, to chaperone her by horse-drawn streetcar between the university and the family home in Oakland. Horse-drawn streetcar. But she needed a chaperone. <laughs> To get to school oh, and back. Oh, no. Uh, by her younger brother. Oh, my God. Uh, as a sophomore, though, she moved into a sorority house on campus so that she didn't okay. have to, like, Thank God. have that long of a commute the whole time. I can't even imagine. When she was a senior, she met the architect Bernard Maybeck, previously mentioned, who would go on to design one of the defining works of the Bay Area School of Architecture, the First Church of Christ Scientist in 1910 in Berkeley, as well as the neoclassical Palace of Fine Arts in 1915 in San Francisco. Hmm. Maybeck was a charismatic teacher and mentor who encouraged many of his students, including Julia, to study as he had at the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris, Ooh. Uh, the world's most prestigious architecture school at the time. So she decided after graduating to sail to Paris. So did which, she go around? <laughs> <laughs> Don't 
know. <laughs> Probably. I don't oh, know. Maybe no. she took like a train across country first. Who knows? It didn't I specifically so. say. <laughs> Her dad was probably like, please don't. It's, please a, don't. it's a nightmare it's a, journey. Oh, God, that's a bear. Uh, but anyway, so she decided to sail to Paris because she heard that the school might soon open its entrance exams to women. That's so Maybe. funny. The so, amount of people that we've talked about who had to go to Europe in order to learn their craft is really amazing. Yeah. And, and her, too. I mean, I mean, she probably could have studied architecture here, but with her teacher saying that that's the best school. Yes. She wanted to go to the best school. I would have too. And yeah, because she, and she learned that they maybe were <laughs> going to accept women soon. She was like, well, I'm going to go and hope for the best. Yeah. Um, so she learned French and worked uh, as the only female architect in a series of Parisian ateliers. Whoa. The school's exam was taxing with written and oral sections. In a typical year, between 90 and 95% of the applicants failed. And that was people who knew French. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, On her first try in 1897, competing in a foreign language against mostly native speakers, she placed 42nd out of 376 applicants. You're fucking kidding me. Yeah, which was, was not high enough to be accepted into the school. Only the top 30 candidates were oh, admitted. Oh, God. She failed a second time the following spring. In the fall of 1898, she tried a third time and succeeded with the 13th highest score. And I bet you anything that most of that was just learning the fucking language. Yes. Oh Absolutely. My God. Um, she was 26 and she was the first woman <laughs> to pass the entrance exams. Oh my God. The San Francisco examiners hailed her achievement with the headline California girl wins high honor. <laughs> 26, California girl. Oh boy. Um, she took some solace in the fact that nearly all the French applicants who passed had also failed the first two times they tried <laughs> yeah. to take the test. So it's like lucky number three seemed to be. Yeah. For even native French speakers, it was the third time. You learn the, the test, time. you start to figure out what they're looking for, and then you like nail it. Yes. Um, she explained her determination to keep trying in a letter to friends. Quote, a mixture of dislike of giving up something attempted and the sense of its being a sort of test in a small way of work itself overcoming its natural disadvantages, she wrote, made it seem a thing that really had to be won. So it just kept, she's like, I got it. No, I'm going to get this. I can't, I I will get it. Come all the way here. I can't have sailed around the entirety of South America Mm. in order to be here Mm. because I'm adding that to this just to, you know, and just to go home. Yep. And be like, all right, well, I was defeated. I tried. So that's bad. So, but she was like, nope, I'm going to do it. Yeah, fuck I'm going to get in. This is the best school. I'm smart. I can do it. Amazing. Um, so she got in. And there was a letter she wrote home while she was in school. I thought this was funny. Uh, she wrote with some frustration that one of her instructors, quote, always seemed astonished if I did anything that shows the least <laughs> intelligence. Ooh, look at what the girl has to say. Whoa. You're a smart little cookie, aren't you? Who knew your brain could accommodate that? Jesus fucking Christ, these teachers. (laughs) Like writing home. So she returned home to Oakland in 1902, degree in hand from this fancy French school. Fuck yes. And she established her own practice. Uh, she adopted the dark suit and tie of the rank and file male architects, Ooh. but with a skirt rather than trousers. Mm. Uh, quote, eschewing a regular purse, which would encumber her hands, she utilized suit pockets to carry ne- necessaries. Oh. So she like added a bunch of pockets to her clothes 
Girl's my idol. Right? Oh, my God. Um, that was written by Eleanor Richley in a book called Eminent Women of the West, which came out in 1975. Ugh. So her first office in San Francisco was also destroyed by the 1906 earthquake. And that earthquake, since it destroyed 80 to 85% of all the buildings, um, precipitated a construction boom in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, at the time... A growing women's network developed through campaigns for the abolition of slavery, temperance, and women's suffrage was primed to help a female professional. And in 1903, Mills College, a women's school in Oakland, asked Julia to design El Campanil, a 72-foot-tall reinforced concrete bell tower in the red-roofed mission style, then popular in the West. Like many of her Beaux-Arts trained contemporaries, she was a master of historical styles and worked in many genres specific to California. So that oh, was that yeah. bell tower. That was, you know. Um, the Young Women's Christian Association also became a major client of hers, for which she designed a dozen uh, y- YWCAs on the West Coast, as well, well as okay. one in Honolulu, as previously mentioned. Uh, in 1913, Phoebe Aberson Hurst, whom she had met through Maybeck, her professor mm. from Berkeley, um, hired Julia to transform 30 acres on the Monterey Peninsula into the YWCA Conference Center, renamed Asilomar, or Refuge by the Sea. Over the next 16 years, Morgan would add 16 buildings, most in a rustic arts and crafts style featuring dramatic exposed wood trusses, redwood walls, and stone fireplaces. Asilomar became a state park in 1956, and in 1987, Morgan's buildings were added to the National Register of Historic Places. Oh, fuck yeah. Phoebe Hurst also introduced Julia to her son, the newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst, for whom she designed the block-long white stucco examiner building in 1915. Damn. Four years later, he hired her again, initially asking her to build him a modest bungalow at his ranch in San Simeon, California. But soon his ambitions changed. (laughs) The commission would turn into an extraordinary, long-running architect-client relationship that would produce a vast castle of fantastic pan-european architecture (laughs) augmented by fragments of buildings mostly from italy and spain that hearst had collected and shipped to california could you imagine just being i just want like a little bungalow oh i think let's add this tower oh let's add this fucking building let's add that building this like uh (laughs) chapel from italy can you incorporate this into my library oh my god that type of shit uh Mm -hmm. and she seems like the person who just would have been like yeah I'll fucking do that. She that sounds do great. Anything. When I was looking at all of her like styles of things, she could work in mo- any architectural style and mm. do it beautifully. I was so impressed by she clearly like all of her clients would specifically have different needs and different styles and things. And she would follow through on all of them. It's insane. Um, which I'm sure this, the, the uh, Hearst castle was really fun. Because she got to just kind of oh do whatever God. the fuck she wanted without any restrictions on money or... Ugh, anyway. Could you imagine? Yeah. So she spent 25 years working continuously with Hearst, spending a majority of her weekends on site working on Hearst Castle. <laughs> and it became her most famous work. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is what this person says. Uh, quote, she could do any style. This is what we're just saying. Castles for Hearst up at Mount Shasta, Italianate stucco little cottages and craftsman buildings, said Lynn Forney McMurray, the daughter of Morgan's longtime secretary and her goddaughter. Quote, her houses were built from the inside out. She thought about how the people were to live. That was what was important to her. But eventually those skills went out of style. In the 1950s, the emphasis was on the new, the modern, the heroic, not to mention on architecture to house the masses. 
as opposed to oh. homes, like big buildings, yeah. like our, our apartment buildings and shit. Yeah. And so at that point, Julia Morgan started to become largely forgotten. Jeez. Uh, architecture as a profession tended to lionize only architects who break new formal ground or dramatically cut stylistic ties from their predecessors. But yeah, no, like dudes who were like, I want to invent something new. Like, and by the time you got to the 50s, like modern architecture was very big and not the ornate. Anyway. Yeah. Um, also, her prolific output is one of the reasons it has taken so long for her work to win the sort of national notice symbolized by the AIA gold medal, hmm. um, oh. which was the award she was the first woman to get. Um, there was something supremely methodical, even metronomic, about her practice. Quote, she ran as efficient an office as I've ever been in, one of her employees said. Typically, we consider that sort of steadiness as being at odds with singular genius, which the cliches have led us to believe comes in bursts of unpredictable inspiration. So because she was oh. such a workhorse and so skilled, they didn't think they like she wasn't recognized as a genius because that was reserved for like unpredictable types who were like, ha ha. And that only happened once every few years where she was just able to churn it out constantly. That is fucking ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Uh, she was hardly Ugh. the kind of architect to madly sketch plans that had suddenly come to her on the back of a napkin. I'm not sure any architect is really, but she never came close to filling that stereotype. Her muse was the grindstone. During her most prolific years, her, her office juggled two or three dozen projects at the same time. She often worked 18-hour days and never got married. Whoa. She produced wow. no manifestos, and she shunned the press. As Sarah Holmes Boutel, her biographer, put it, quote, she steadfastly refused to enter competitions, write articles, submit photographs to architectural magazines, or serve on committees, dismissing such activities as fit for only talking architects. <laughs> Morgan had a similarly dim view of prepping her archive for posterity. When she retired, she had all her blueprints and other materials destroyed. She wow. figured the only people who might have any use for them were her clients, and they each had their own copies. My God, she really she was had just no so... hubris at all. She uh -uh. was like the opposite of a fucking narcissist. Yes. She worked for the sake of the work and the joy that the work brought her and nothing else. Mm -hmm. She d did none of this for recognition or fame or, you know, the perception of genius. Mm -hmm. Incredible. You right. do not hear about men doing that. Not as much, <laughs> no. Wow. Um, she never hitched her architecture or her career to any theory or school. In this, she resembled another overlooked Californian architect, Irving Gill, who by 1915 was producing houses that were as radically spare and stripped of ornament as anything designed by Adolf Luz in Europe. Apparently, that must be a famous architect. Um, but stayed <laughs> largely unknown because he lacked Luz's interest in polemics. Polemics? Anyway. I don't know. Julia built a following that was restricted to her own professional circles and largely to the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. But like Gill, she understood structure and the behavior of materials deeply enough to make her architecture a vehicle for experiments and engineering, especially in her early embrace of concrete. Like literally all I was reading about this woman is how she was a master of creating buildings that could withstand earthquakes, which is so quintessential now to I California. Mean, good God. Yeah. Especially if like, if in an earthquake of the size, or sorry, fire. Oh shit. You, it was the fire. 
right? That decimated that hotel. Yeah. Well, it withstood the shell of the hotel withstood it, but the inside was destroyed. Yeah. But like, yeah, like when when there are cities that are on coasts that face a lot of destructive elements. Yes. They need architecture that's going to withstand that. And at that time, that was it's revolutionary. Not, yeah, that was not as as understood as it is now to find a person because back then I think it was just kind of assumed. Well, we have earthquakes here, so just build your houses, and uh, if you have an earthquake. Hope it makes it. <laughs> but then she was like, actually, if we use these materials and this design, then you'll be fine, theoretically. She, to me, she sounds like someone who must have had like a photographic memory. She sounds like she was a fucking genius. I mean, l- legitimately, somebody who just stored everything in a way that she could access it at any time and then utilize it in the most consistent and steadfast way human as humanly possible yeah like now we have the 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 facts of that Mm -hmm. and we can look back at that and go wow right you know everything about what she did was so consistent and so brilliant and so smart yeah i mean yeah yeah Anyway, certainly operating as a woman in a profession dominated by men had much to do with the way she carried herself. Julia disdained publicity for reasons that were at least partly strategic. She had many clients who accepted the idea of an architecture practice headed by a woman, but would not have been thrilled to see Morgan sticking her neck out for any cause, let alone a feminist one. Oh. Some have argued that this suited Morgan's temperament, since her priority was always to safeguard her ability to do her work. Yeah. So she just kept her head down because she, like, she was obviously supported by feminist organizations, mm-hmm. but she wasn't going to be like, la, 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 because then it would turn off some male clients. And probably some female ones. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yet in the end, those qualities, her consistency, her distaste for self-promotion, the obstacles she faced as a female architect, don't fully explain why her work was admired rather than celebrated Mm -hmm. for so long. Mm. Oh, yeah. Another, because everybody knew at the time that she was a wonderful, skilled architect. Right. But it wasn't like, oh my God, such a genius. Like it was, she was just like. You know, if you want good work done, go to Julia Morgan. We'll hire Julia, but we're not going to treat her like she's fucking Da Vinci. Yes. Uh, Another major factor has been the limited, even stunted definition of innovation prevailing in architecture and among critics and prize Mm -hmm. juries since the beginning of the modern movement in the early years of the 20th century. That view has tended to lionize only architects who break formal ground or dramatically cut stylistic ties from their predecessors, as we talked about before. Yeah. So she didn't do any of that. Yeah. She was just wonderfully creative in the styles that people already knew instead of trying to invent something like reinvent the wheel right she perfected the wheel yeah and made a fucking solid house yeah while she was at it yep her work by contrast was anchored in synthesis it took the academic Mm. classicism still dominant when she was studying at the l'école des beaux-arts and mixed it with the elements of the bay region style established around the turn of the century by maybeck and others the result was a Beaux-Arts in crafts, to coin a phrase. The emphasis on symmetry and decorum of the classical European approach, combined with the connection to region and landscape, fundamental to the Bay Region architecture style. Some of her work was plainly neoclassical, some fully craftsman, but nearly all of it exists somewhere on that continuum. Yeah. So she knew her audience, what was 
popular in California, was able to take the neoclassic like style she learned and make it Californian. And and her clients knew they could come to her to do that. Mm-hmm. Yep. When prompted by a client like Hearst, her architecture could be theatrical, whimsical, even extravagant. Mm. The buildings at San Simeon and Wintoon were all three. In Southern California, she adopted the Spanish colonial revival. Through the years, many critics and architectural historians have read these buildings against the backdrop of modernism and dismissed her architecture as fussy or eclectic, which for many of them were synonyms for undisciplined. Uh. If there's one thing Morgan's work is not, it's undisciplined. Uh. The projects over which she had more creative control were subtler and often let material richness speak more loudly than form or revivalist style. St. John's Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California, finished in 1910, is a blend of Romanesque, Gothic, Tudor, and arts and crafts elements that come masterfully together in a redwood interior that's complex and harmonious all at the same time. Wow. This is obviously the architecture magazine. Yes, but it does sound very luscious. <laughs> yes, right? Yeah. A chapel and auditorium at Asilomar from 1915 and 1928, respectively, apply the same approach. In these projects, the influence of the earliest Bay Region architects is evident, but Morgan added what their work lacked or maybe sought in the romantic spirit of John Ruskin to avoid, namely a layer of urbane sophistication. She could just pick out of her memory, out of her understanding of architecture, the, the very specific things that she had learned and studied and go, this is what this particular thing needs. Yes. That's fucking incredible mm -hmm. that is not a a standard skill in any in any creative field but i i mean good god yeah no it it's yeah it's really obvious when you look at her work too um she took the rustic character of maybeck's architecture it's bracing roughness and smoothed it out creating something more easily salable sure but also in terms of technical skill and poise often more impressive most impressive of all were the buildings that brought together regional, historical, and cultural references all at once. Julia Morgan's YWCA for San Francisco's Chinatown neighborhood, finished in 1932, is among the best examples, mm -hmm. a masonry building in a hilly urban setting with three towers topped with Chinese tile. Ooh. There is something of a chicken and egg quality to the question of Morgan's relationship to style. <laughs> was it the wide range of clients that inspired her diverse architectural output? Or was it more the case that she sought work from a wide range of clients so she could satisfy her own native interest in stretching her talents? Oh. Many of her admirers have written that what made her work stand out is its absolute commitment to the desires of her clients, many of whom kept coming back to her. But I think this misses the point. Throughout her career, she was arranging tests for herself and more often than not, passing them with flying colors. Mm. All the same, by virtue of personality and in service of her reputation, she exhibited a notable distaste for experimental form. In 2005, uh, there was a book uh, about her and Asilomar, the, the, the buildings she designed. Uh, it tells the story of a young architect in her office who sketched an inventive, fanciful set of stairs that struck his boss as unbuildable. Quote, well, young man, she told him dismissively, <laughs> I can't deal with fiction writers. <laughs> Still, oh you God. would have to have a pretty blinkered oh. view of how architecture or American culture operated during Julia Morgan's life, not to see her as a remarkably, even astonishingly groundbreaking figure. Her practice itself was the polemic. Polemic? Her professional success and longevity were the radical statements of her purpose. 
Morgan, who never married, died on February 2nd, 1957 at her apartment in San Francisco at the age of 85. Wow. Architecture, construction, and engineering remain fields dominated by men. And yet, quote, all the biases against her, she turned into assets, said Julia Donahoe, an architect and lawyer who successfully nominated Julia Morgan for the 2014 American Institute of Architects Gold Medal. 2014. Yeah. It was the first time the organization had given its highest honor to a woman, as we previously said. Uh, Julia added, quote, I don't know why we didn't learn about Julia Morgan in school. But I hope that will never happen again. Yes. And that is Julia Morgan. Man. (laughs) I wanted to go to Hearst Castle. And when I was looking up information about Hearst Castle, I was like, wait, this place was designed by a woman? Oh, when you were in California? Yes. Oh, yeah. We didn't get to go yet. I'm gonna. But you have to now. (laughs) Stunningly beautiful. And as oh. soon, when I learned it was designed by a woman, I was like, I want to know more about her. And then the more I learned about her, I was like, oh, fuck. I have to talk about her on the podcast. That's the thing about this podcast is any time I've learned that a, a woman has said or or has done something, I'm so interested in her in you a level beyond. In. Like, I get hooked in. Like, even just looking at um, On This Day in History for my own oh, yeah. person, I was like, oh, who's this? Who's this? Who's this? And I just, I ended up, like, going totally down a rabbit hole with, like, three different people. The same thing happened to me, too. That's so funny. <laughs> it's just, I mean, and that happens every time now. And, I mean, I don't, I think it's amazing. It's such an, we're so lucky to do this in that way because we, we have this curiosity that I think we probably had before. Oh, absolutely. Obviously. Yeah. We wouldn't have started this without it. But now we have very specific reasons to chase that curiosity and then right. share it with people. Right. And I love that. Yeah. One of my on this day's uh, birthday wise, uh, I think it was 1913 because it's July 3rd. We'll seg into that. Mm-mm-mm. But it was uh, Dorothy Kilgallen's birthday. And she was a journalist in the mid 1900s and I had to uh, like 1950s and I had to study her um, vocal pattern for a show that I did one time and then the more I started I was like oh Dorothy Kilgallen I know her she was on What's My Line and she speaks with a very mid-Atlantic accent which mid-Atlantic is not a real accent it's just one that um, actors and professional like speakers were coached in which was somewhere between American and British back in the 1940s and 50s like that was and so Anyway, I studied her, and apparently she died in kind of a really sketchy way, so I'm intrigued by that. And anyway, let's go into on this day. <laughs> yeah, speaking of, and I mean, to thank you, because she was fucking amazing, and I I love everything about she, how you dissected. That like, sort of understated, I mean, yeah. thank the people who wrote those articles, because yeah. they were beautiful. She, The New York Times was one of those um, uh, after the fact uh, obituaries like the New York Times has started writing obituaries for people who were overlooked in their time. Um, Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Um, And and she was one of them. And that was great. The architecture magazine uh, guy, he was amazing because he also he's from California and apparently he grew up in a a home designed by Julia Morgan that was uh, bought by his parents in the 70s. And and that's kind of what sparked. And he's like he works for architecture magazine and he's an architect himself. And 
It's really cool. I love that. Um, but yeah, July 3rd is the day that this episode drops. Fuck yeah. So uh, hopefully most people are not working or Yeah, happy that, Independence Day or yeah, something. <laughs> um, so July 3rd, 1844, the last pair of great ox is killed. And great, I just thought that was interesting because, you know, we've talked about our planet on this and yeah. it was the last of a particular species that died. It was a pair. Oh. And they were, their, their like genus name was something that has penguin in it. And um, <laughs> they're actually not related to penguins. Okay. But penguins were so named because when they were first spotted by Westerners, they thought they looked so much like great ox that they named them penguin. Fascinating. Yeah. They were, okay. They were like big build, unlike penguins, but they were kind of like. Spell it. Can you spell great? Uh, yeah, great like the word, and then A-U-K-S. Oh, I was thinking ox like oxen. Yeah. No. But it's A-U-K-S. Oak. Oh. Oak. Yeah. Interesting. So they went extinct in 1844. Oh, wow. Because, um, yeah, not also Mary Roberts, like I was just reminded of that, and the, the Tasmanian tiger and things yep. like that. Animals we oh. never got to see. Uh, yeah. July 3rd, 1852. Congress establishes the United States second man in San Francisco. So the second place to make money in mm. San Francisco. And I thought that was on brand for Julia Morgan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, July 3rd, 1863, American Civil War, the final day of the Battle of Gettysburg, culminates with Pickett's Charge. Yes, it does. Yep. We all know that, kind of, maybe. Maybe you know why Independence Day is Independence Day. Maybe you don't. July 3rd, 1886, Carl Benz officially unveils the Benz Patent Motor Wagon, the first purpose-built automobile. Oh, well, well, well. So widely to believe like the first design for a car designed to be a car. What year was this? Uh, 1886. Okay, okay. Hi, Kitty. July 3rd, 1890, Idaho is admitted as the 43rd U.S. state. Oh, so Ooh. happy birthday, Idaho. Happy birthday, Idaho. Uh, <laughs> uh, July 3rd, 1962. Big jump there. Uh, Jackie Robinson becomes the first African-American to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, shit. And then I just wanted to uh, say happy birthday to goddess Audra McDonald because oh. it's her birthday. Happy birthday, Audra. And I fucking love that woman Actress. so much. Actress. Go look her up, people. If you, you don't know, know who she is. My roommate was her waiter when she went into labor, <laughs> and he didn't know who she was. <laughs> and, I, and now he's probably a part of her oh birth story for her child, her child with her husband. Very possibly. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Dude, what are you excited great. about? I'm excited about um, this time next week, I am going to be on a... I hesitate to call it a, a vacation, but I hope it will be somewhat vacation-like. Um, we're going to be in southern Colorado doing a little bit of scouting for our pilot that we hope to start shooting in yeah. the fall. And if you guys want to know what that's called, it is Galena's Comet. We've got social media I've read the pilot. Accounts. It's good. The pilot is, uh, we are pretty proud of that. Um, <laughs> we've got a newsletter too. Maybe I'll put a link to that in our show notes. If you guys want to see like what we are doing in Southern Colorado, that's where we'll be talking about that. Yeah. Um, and we're also just going to like, hang out with some friends and you know 
do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So I'm just excited to not necessarily be in the muggy New York heat for a week. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I'm so excited for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I think that is that is that for now. Um, oh, I did want to say thank you to the people who gave us a review <laughs> recently we we got some really nice reviews oh yeah we did um in the last couple of weeks slash maybe the last month and i really appreciate it because you know having new reviews are it's a it's a nice thing and we also do have a patreon that we have some fantastic patrons who we love and who we hope love us so if you want to join them we are at patreon.com slash gwbb podcast and um, otherwise, you can buy us a single coffee at ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash podcast. Word. And we really appreciate any support you guys give. It helps us maintain our website and yep. our podcast hosting yep. and yep. all of those little, like, minute things that go into hosting this stuff so we appreciate that and without further ado uh i'm gonna say peace out witches see you next week bye Bye. thank you for listening to good witches bad bitches thank you so much for listening we really appreciate it good witches bad bitches is hosted by deanna greif me you and you (laughs) Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there, as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.